Hi, everybody. Welcome back for another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. My name is John Marinelli, and today we're joined by board-certified um, speech-language pathologist Teresa Richard to talk a little bit about normal and abnormal swallow. So, Teresa, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I must say that Teresa is a bit of a celebrity in the SLP world. She has a um, podcast you can find her on called Swallow Your Pride Podcast. It's got over 3 million downloads. You can find her on Twitter as well at T Richard SLP. Anything else? Just I know you also have a, a book out there that um, has a lot of helpful information. Anything else you want to just shout out to our listeners in terms of other things, resources we can find? For instance, just recently on your podcast, one of the laryngologists, Dr. Postma on there, you have a website. Anything else? That's worth knowing. Yeah, yeah. You can find me at TeresaRichard.com. I'm also Teresa Richard SLP on Instagram. And yeah, I would say definitely check out that book. I it's called So You're Having Trouble Swallowing. I wrote it specifically for patients, but also for other professionals that, you know, aren't speech pathologists. So I've had a lot of doctors tell me that it was really helpful for them to sort of understand our role in in the interdisciplinary team. So I've loved hearing that feedback. So yeah, check that out if you're interested also. First thing, before we actually even get into swallow and everything, I just wanted to ask you for the average otolaryngology trainee, um, I don't think all the time we have a great sense of all the training that goes into becoming a speech language pathologist. Could you just walk us through what goes into um, the training and kind of how, how you get to where you're at today? Sure. So everybody, you know, of course, gets their bachelor's degree and then they get their master's degree in speech language pathology. And this is sort of, you know, where you can choose your path, essentially. Um, and there's some, you know, master's degree programs that are really school-based pediatric focused, and there's others that are more medically focused. Um, but regardless, we all come out with the same master's degree. And then after that, you have to do a nine-month clinical fellowship. And usually that is done in, you know, your ideal setting. So if you want to work in the medical field, obviously it's ideal to get one in a hospital, but those are very, very limited. They're very coveted. It's difficult to find. Um, so a lot of times, a lot of SLPs end up doing them in a different setting. Um, and then they still continue to take, you know, continuing education courses and things like that to get a lot of the more medical knowledge to be able to, to work in the medical field. Awesome. Okay. So let's transition into talking maybe first about, um, normal swallow physiology. Um, I think traditionally some of us maybe, uh, at least I kind of grew up being most familiar with the stages of like oral preparatory phase, oral propulsive phase, pharyngeal stage, and esophageal stage of swallow. I understand maybe that's been expanded over time. How, how would you conceptualize a, a framework for thinking about normal swallow? Yeah, yeah. So so this is perfect, actually, to think about the normal swallow. We do you know, still consider the oral phase, the pharyngeal phase, the esophageal phase. Um, gosh, about 20 years ago, Dr. Bonnie Martin-Harris has sort of been a pioneer in our field, and she created the uh, MBS-IMP, which is the Modified Barium Swallow Impairment Profile. And what this did was it basically described 17 components to the swallow. So although, you know, we think oral, pharyngeal, esophageal is the three main phases, we've broke it down even more specifically to be these 17 components, because what we realized is that there was so much more overlap between the stages. You know, it was, it was so much more oral and pharyngeal, pharyngeal and esophageal. You know, it's, it's more of a, you know, one felt movement as opposed to these cut up concrete stages. So just sort of nuanced, but also something that we're really as SLPs wanting to make sure that people understand the semantics a little bit more because it's a lot more complicated than just these, <laughs> these three stages. 
Well, um, I guess forgive me if I'm not using all the proper lingo here then, but one question I wanted to ask you about was just differences between swallowing liquids and swallowing solids after they're chewed, um, just in terms of thinking about oral preparatory or propulsive stages. How do liquids and solids differ? Oh, gosh. Well, that's a really loaded question. Um, <laughs> and, and that's one thing that we do, you know, as I mentioned, the modified barium swallow impairment profile, that's one thing that we do test separately as we test liquid separately and we test solids separately. Um, obviously, we know there's different neural circuits involved. There's different central pattern generators involved in the way that, you know, the tongue moves as, as we talk about the oral stage, there's the oral prep stage, and then there's also the oral propulsive stage. Um, but those include things like lip closure, tongue control during the bolus hold, bolus prep and mastication, bolus transport, oral residue, and initiation of the pharyngeal swallow. And all of those are going to differ whether it's it's a liquid or a solid. So that's why it's so important for us to, to assess both of those on an instrumental. And it's also important for us to not make overgeneralizations because I know that's something that you know, nurses are wonderful, wonderful humans, but sometimes they will make rec blanket recommendations like, you know, this patient shouldn't have liquids or this patient shouldn't have this consistency of solids, but it's it needs to be much more individualized than that because it's much more nuanced than that. So we need to look at each texture by each each component. Can we talk a little bit about airway protection during swallow? So just main mechanisms, how kind of some of the high yield uh, physiology parts about that? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I think when people think of what speech pathologists do, you know, if, if we put it very simply, we want to see if the patient is aspirating or not. Um, it's much more complicated than that. And we're looking at much more, many more features than that. And we're learning a lot more about what is considered normal and what is considered abnormal. So, you know, there's, there's penetration, there's aspiration. Penetration is, you know, food or liquid going to the level of the vocal cords. And then aspiration is obviously food or liquid falling past the vocal cords, but we're learning a lot more now that, that penetration is normal, that the healthy, normal adult does penetrate on liquids um, rather often. And we even, um, Dr. Susan Butler did a study, if I'm totally butchering the number, I, I believe I'm pretty close. I believe it's 17% of healthy adults actually aspirate on a regular basis. So we don't want to just say, oh, this person aspirates, you know, let's get them a feeding tube and move on down the road because obviously they could still be a very healthy, normal functioning adult. Um, so we don't want to just make those blanket statements. So uh, that being said, we'll get into instrumental assessments in a little bit, but um, there's a lot that we look at in, in the pharyngeal phase. Obviously, airway protection is just the main thing. Do they have a patent airway? Um, but some of the really important components that we look at is soft palate elevation. Is the soft palate elevating? Uh, laryngeal elevation, anterior hyoid excursion, epiglottic movement, laryngeal vestibular closure, there's a pharyngeal stripping wave, pharyngeal contraction, pharyngoesophageal segment opening, tongue base retraction, and pharyngeal residue. So those are all things that we look at in this teeny tiny pharyngeal phase of the swallow. You know, whether they are penetrating or aspirating, these are the specific things that we want to see, are they impaired or not. Does normal um, pharyngeal transit time increase with age? Yes, it would take longer. Yes. So it slows a little bit over time, I guess. Yeah, 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 yeah. I guess um, that probably places patients at increased risk of, of aspirating. Then. Yeah, yeah, and you know, again, this this is the this is the nuance with all of this is that the the normal transit time is a huge range, and some healthy normals take a very long time to begin with. 
Um, so that's why it's it's difficult. And we have to really make this an individualized study between, you know, is this patient taking long compared to other people or is this patient taking a long time um, and it's just what they do. So, um, yes, it definitely does increase as as patients get older. You had mentioned um, laryngeal elevation. Can we just talk briefly about patients with a tracheostomy present, how that might affect some of those comp- uh, normal components of swallowing? Yeah, yeah. So this is sort of a big, um, I don't want to say a hot topic, but it's something that, you know, speech pathologists are gaining a lot more recognition for working with. Um, you know, obviously it does cause sort of an anchor, but it does not inhibit the swallow as much as people thought that it did. Um, there's been, you know, a lot of myths that, that the trach prevents patients from eating or that even having an NG tube prevents patients from eating. Of course, like I said, that stuff can, you know, slow things down a tiny bit, but it should not be the reason that someone doesn't eat. You know, we definitely need to assess over, you know, on an instrumental assessment, make sure the airway is patented, but um, plenty of patients do eat and drink just fine with those as long as they they have a speaking valve or swallowing valve that helps to keep it occluded. Before we move on to talking a little bit more about dysphagia, one more anatomical component I, I want to just define because it's it tends to be high yield. It's just the definition or terminology surrounding the UES or the PES. Could you just define those for us and the uh, muscles that are involved? Yeah, yeah. So that's that's totally the same thing. So the the UES, the upper esophageal sphincter, um, is also considered the pharyngeal esophageal segment opening. So they're they're all used interchangeably, but it includes inferior pharyngeal constrictor and the cricopharyngeus. I know a lot of our textbooks kind of just put it as like the you know the start of the esophageal stage of swallow, and sometimes they even include some of the upper esophageal. Um, cervical esophageal muscles in that UES definition, along with those other two muscles. But I'm not sure if you'd add anything to that. Yeah, yeah. I would just say that, you know, it's, it's a sphincter opening. So, um, you know, we, we want it to rise up and, and, you know, almost contract like a sphincter. So that's really just what we're looking for on instrumental. Let's transition now to talking about dysphagia um, and specifically talking a little bit about screening for dysphagia. Sometimes, at least in the laryngology world, we often use the EAT-10, the 10-item eating assessment tool. Also, oftentimes we encounter uh, bedside nursing swallows and the inpatient practice. Could you just touch on a little bit of some of those screening options for dysphagia? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So the E10 is a wonderful tool. Obviously, it's, you know, patient reported outcome measure, which I'm a huge fan of those because it really tells us how much eating, drinking, swallowing is impacting the patient's quality of life. I think, you know, the the older I've gotten, the more I've I've really tailored my practice more to a patient-centered approach, which we should to begin with, but um, it's become even more prevalent with me. You know, some things that we think might bother the patients don't bother the patients, and there's little things that we might not think are big deals, but are a huge part of their, you know, quality of life or cultural aspect to, you know, how they eat dinner with their family. So I, I love outcome measures such as this, such as the E10, because it gives us a really good starting point of where to start and what's most important with the patient. Um, so a typical screening for dysphagia, you mentioned the bedside nursing swallow. Um, some people call it the three ounce water challenge. It's formally known as the Yale, Yale swallow protocol. This is something that a nurse can do at the bedside. Um, a lot of nurses even do it in, in the ER. Um, it's three ounces of water and you need to be up. The patient needs to be able to drink the entire three ounces at once without stopping, without gurgling, without coughing, just 
three ounce continuous swallow, that's it. Um, so if they do that, they pass, quote unquote, pass the screening. If anything happens, if they're not able to finish the three ounces, if they cough, if they gurgle, um, if they clear their throat, anything like that, then it's referred on to um, an actual more formal assessment for dysphagia. So those are that's sort of the quick and dirty um, way that nursing helps us a lot with with some of those screenings. As we start thinking a little bit more about more comprehensive assessments of swallow, I know you had mentioned earlier the uh, a distinction between instrumental and non-instrumental components. I guess just starting off, when a patient comes to see you in clinic, what what are some of the key features you're looking for in the chart about that patient's medical history? Yeah, so so we would start with just a clinical swallow exam, so it's abbreviated as CSE, um, and that's sort of where we do all of this stuff before we decide if an instrumental assessment is appropriate. So like you said, first, we would start with that chart review. Um, and there's so much in there that, you know, as, as SLPs are getting, you know, becoming more and more involved in the medical field, we're learning more and more about what's really important in the chart to be aware of. Obviously, we want to know about any past medical conditions. We're now learning so much more about how different body systems can impact dysphagia. So knowing what some of those other conditions they might have. Medications is a huge thing. There's a lot of medications that can cause dysphagia. There's also medications that patients can be on that have side effects that cause dysphagia. So um, it's that's obviously nuanced as well, but it's important to know some of those key medications that can really... Um, you know, sort of make or break our treatment. Um, we want to know what normal swallowing looked like for them before. You know, some patients have put themselves on thickened liquids because it made it easier. Some have feeding tubes. Some use, you know, dietary supplements. What does normal swallowing look like for them? Um, let's see, what else? I guess one one related question, just to follow up on one thing you just said. So I, I guess things that are coming to mind to me um, when thinking about medications, like I, I guess GERD medications are, are relevant. Like if there's neurologic medications, like if they're taking something for Parkinson's, that's obviously relevant. Are there other ones that come to your mind as things that you're looking out for? Anything specifically? Yeah, there's a, especially a lot of like muscle relaxers. Obviously, if you think about the muscles that we use for swallowing, um, things like Ativan, things like that can really impact when we're going to do a swallowing, swallow evaluation. You know, why is this patient lethargic? Why are these muscles not moving the way that we want them to? So those are things we want to look out for. Obviously, if they're prescribed by a physician, the patient needs to be on them. That's totally fine. But we might want to time our evaluation to, you know, sort of the end of that half-life or, if, if we can hold it for a little bit to be able to get a more truer picture of what the swallow looks like without it being, you know, impacted by muscle relaxers. So then when in this clinical assessment, what is the tip off that says, okay, we need to go down the instrumental route? Yeah. So that's, that's a great question. Um, I don't know that it's a specific tip off as much as if they have sort of a lot of these clinical signs, you know, they, they've got a lot of conditions that can cause dysphagia. Um, we also do, depending on the stability of the patient, depending on how they're, you know, if they're in the ICU, we might not do an actual, um, we might not have them eat or drink something for us. But if it's someone that comes to us an outpatient, we might just have them trial some food or liquid uh, and see how they do there. So if, you know, they're showing signs and symptoms of dysphagia, such as coughing, or they're, they're having trouble with it, or they, they report things to us, um, we notice that they're having trouble, you know, coughing or eating or drinking, or there's a, a whole myriad of things that we look for, then, then we'll go for the instrumental. And I would say I'm very, very pro instrumental, and I would pretty much 
recommend if anybody is having swallowing trouble, this is a pretty bold statement I'm going to say, but if you are having swallowing trouble, please go for an instrumental assessment because we truly cannot see. Um, if the, the only time I would say it's not important to go would be if the results that we find don't impact your treatment. So if regardless of whatever we find, you're not going to go to therapy to fix it, or you're not interested in surgery if, if it needs to be that route, or you're not interested in trying a different medication or something like that. So if it's not going to change the outcome, then I would say don't do the instrumental. Um, but other than that, if there's any suspicion of dysphagia, I always say, look, um, I'm always, as long as I've been doing this, as many patients as I've done instrumentals on, I always say that I'm never surprised because I'm always surprised. It's it's the patients that I think are going to do totally fine and they're aspirating everything or vice versa. They, you know, we think they're going to be a mess. We think they're aspirating everything and they somehow functionally are doing just fine. So it's really, really much better to look than to just sort of guess and have them end up having, you know, a negative outcome down the road. When you say instrumental, are you, are you is that meaning flexible laryngoscopy and then maybe you're going to add on some additional things on top of that? Or what, what do you mean by instrumental? Yep. Yep. Great question. So when we say instrumental, we mean our, our two main instrumental assessments. So that's fees, which is flexible endoscopic evaluation of swallowing, um, which is like you said, a flexible laryngoscopy, but fees is the procedure that speech pathologists can perform. Um, the other one is a video fluoroscopic swallow study, which is sort of the fancier name. It used to just be called a modified barium swallow study. Um, so those are the two. And, and really it comes down to accessibility and a lot of facilities, some facilities only have access to fees. Some only have access to video fluoroscopy. Um, if you're in a wonderful medical setting and you have access to both, that's totally ideal um, because there are pros and cons to each assessment and, and we can get into that a little bit more. But um, it, it's really sort of whichever you can get your hands on is going to be the better, <laughs> the best assessment. So let's talk uh, fees first then. Just logistically speaking, how is that performed? Yeah. So um, you had asked a little bit about training before. Let me back up. If you don't mind, I'll, I'll elaborate on that a little bit more. Um, so speech pathologists are, you know, graduate with a master's degree, go on and do a fellowship, hopefully in the medical field. Um, I actually went on and got my board certification in swallowing disorders, which just required a lot of additional coursework, a test work or more test work. Um, but in order to do instrumental assessments, you have to be deemed competent in those areas. So to do fees, um, some states have various requirements. Some do not. Um, some states recommend about 25 to 50 passes under the supervision of, of another clinically competent SLP. Um, so there is much more rigorous training involved. There's also coursework involved with that. Um, to do video fluoroscopy, that MBSIMP that I had mentioned before that Dr. Bonnie Martin-Harris created, um, there's also an entire, you know, certification program that you can go through for that, which a lot of hospital systems require their SLPs to go through um, so that you're able to interpret what you see on the video fluoroscopy a lot more. So um, there's definitely a lot more training required in order to be able to do both fees and video fluoroscopy. So just wanted to to clarify that first. Um what was your question about fees? I'm sorry, John. <laughs> just like I, I just I'm thinking back to the fees is, is that I've been involved with it. There's like a stepwise progression in terms of what substances or what, what foods are that the patient takes. Just logistically, how do we do that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, logistically, we usually do grab a nurse or a CNA from the facility to help us out with that. Obviously, we are the ones passing the scope. So we have the scope in the patient's nose. Um, but the MBS IMP has a very specific protocol on what you do. Usually start with ice chips, make sure that the patient can manage ice chips. A lot of times, especially if they're on a trach event, that's what we want to start with. 
Um, and then from there, we'll progress into liquids and then solids. So liquids, we want to just start with thin liquids. Um, it used to be a belief that we would start with thickened liquids, um, but we're learning sort of a lot more about I don't like to use the dangers of thickened liquids. I, I don't I don't like to use that term. We've we've discovered some more side effects with with thickened liquids than that what we used to know. But if we start with them in an instrumental assessment, a lot of times if you start with a honey thick liquid, it can really and they have a lot of residue or they have a lot of secretions, it can completely impair the view of the swallow. So we always want to start with a thin liquid, see how the patient manages that. If we do feel like we need to go to thicken liquids from there, we can. Um, but we obviously like to see how they do with thin to begin with and see if that's something that they can manage. Um, then from there, we will go on to solid food. So we'll go on to pureed food. So like an applesauce, um, a pudding, sometimes a pudding can be too thick. And sometimes depending on the coloring, it can really coat, you know, the, muc the mucosa and the larynx and can be difficult to see. But um, we'll do pureed, then we'll do some what we call mechanical soft. We also have, there's a new <laughs> dietary classification called IDSI, um, and there's, they have minced and moist. They have sort of some different dietary categories now. This, this lingo is supposed to be used in a lot of facilities already, but I think it's a little slow rolling out, but essentially like a mechanical soft thing, whether that's you know, some, some soft fruit cup or some peaches or something chopped up. And then we also will try a solid. So whether that's a cracker or a cookie, something like that. So the, that is the, a, the standardized protocol that we, we should use. And what that does is obviously there's a lot of data on, you know, what the swallow should look like using those different textures. The beauty of fees and one thing that I love about fees, and especially I did fees in nursing homes for years and years is that you can really use any food. Um, it doesn't have to be mixed with barium or anything like the video fluoroscopy does. Um, and you can essentially use any food. So we've had some patients that are on very strict diets or only want to eat a specific food, only want to try a different food. If it's end of life, they only might care about a few specific textures. So we will try exactly what they want. So it can be a little bit more individualized in that aspect. And when you actually are watching um, patients swallow these different items, what are you looking for on laryngoscopy? Yeah, so so the beauty of fees is that we actually can view the you know the structure of the larynx, so we can tell if there's a lot of secretions, we can tell if there's a lot of residue. Um, we we can look at some physiology. One of the big you know, pros and cons of doing the fees versus video fluoroscopy is video fluoroscopy. You see the physiology very, very well, you know, obviously from the side, but with the top down view of the fees and, you know, looking over the, the larynx here, um, we're more, able, like I said, more able to see structures and function. We want to, there we do can see a whiteout phase, which is when the epiglottis inverts can also tell some laryngeal elevation from that. Um, obviously can see very crystal clear if the patient's penetrating or aspirating. Um, you can zoom the scope down to see, you know, is it a little bit of aspiration or is it just, you know, free flowing into the trachea? Um, you can see some, you know, upper esophageal sphincter opening. A lot of times you can tell if, if the UES is impaired because food obviously isn't able to clear through the, through the UES. So, um, I would say those are sort of the main pillars of what we're looking for on, on video fluoros or I mean on fees, pardon me. And then just putting it all together. So when we see a recommendation from y'all in an inpatient setting of saying, um, this person needs ne nectar thickened liquids, for example, that's based on watching them swallow these things, these different items and saying at, at, at certain consistencies, it's, it's having penetration or aspiration or getting hung up there. Is that kind of the gist? Yep. Yep. That's exactly it. So, you know, if they're trying the thin liquids and it's too fast for them, like we talked about, you know, in, in the older population, 
you know, their swallow is, takes a little bit longer. If the thin liquids are too fast for them, um, you know, they may end up aspirating. They may end up coughing a lot. It may just be very uncomfortable. They may not be, you know, sort of in danger of aspirating, but it may, it may be uncomfortable for them. So then we'll progress to, you know, sort of the nectar thick liquids. Same thing. See how they do with that. See if they're able to, you know, their anatomy, their physiology is fast enough to be able to swallow it safely, swallow it comfortably so that they're not coughing or choking and so that they aren't aspirating. And then we sort of go from there to honey thick liquids if we need to. And then putting thick is the absolute last that I don't think anybody should be on. Okay. So transitioning maybe now to talk a little bit about, about uh, video fluoroscopic swallow studies or VFSS, sometimes called modified barium swallow studies. What? So we say modified barium. What differentiates it from a barium swallow? Oh, gosh. Um, that's a loaded question. And I don't know that I have the exact answer to that. Um, I do know that the barium swallow is something that only is, is part of the upper GI series that only that only GIs can do. Um, and, and this is sort of a big thing that happens a lot when patients go to, you know, call the hospital to have it done or they get a referral. I even went through this with my own son. My son needed to have a video fluoroscopy and the, you know, scheduling woman kept saying, well, does, isn't it a barium swallow? And I was like, no, it's not. Um, so I know that, you know, that's a lot that we leave up to GI between, you know, whether they, it can also can be called an esophagram as well. Um, there's a myriad of other GI, you know, tests that they can run. And if we, um, you know, notice something that, you know, that it does need to have GI looked at closer, then we will just refer them on first, you know, before we do the video fluoroscopy. So it's something that's easy to, um, from a resident perspective, easy to make that mistake of saying, oh, we need a barium swallow and not realizing that um, one is done uh, just in these upper GI shots, like you mentioned, uh, esophagram, and then the video fluoroscopic swallow study being done at 30 frames per second, getting a, a much different kind of real-time assessment of swallow. And so, so at least in the laryngology clinic, we definitely order both of those, but I just wanted to at least make the point that um, they are not the same. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Okay, great. So um, now talking about the video fluoroscopic swallow studies though. So how, how is that performed? Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's done in the radiology suite. It's um, the food is coated with barium. Um, and then, yeah, like I said, there's these 17 components that we look at. So um, depending on, you know, what the, what the facility looks like, you'll have the speech pathologist in there. You'll have the radiologist in there. Um, if it's a really, really nice radiologist, um, he, he or she will let us, you know, do as many trials as possible, go through our entire protocol. Um, this is something that SLPs have really been fighting for is to let us do the entire protocol. Some radiologists think that, you know, it's too much radiation exposure, which there's a lot of research to show that it's, it's very minimal. Um, so hopefully they do allow us to go through the whole, the whole protocol. Um, you absolutely can tell, you know, on the x-ray when it's lined with barium, if the patient does aspirate. And that's the whole point. I guess that's, it's one point I would love to make to your audience is that's the whole point of doing these swallow studies is if a patient aspirates, that's exciting for us because it's an opportunity for us to figure out exactly what's going on, problem solve, troubleshoot, get them a good treatment plan. Um, we, I, I don't mean to blanket statement radiologists here, but a lot of radiologists, as soon as they see one bout of aspiration on a video fluoroscopy, they stop the study. Um, and so we sort of have to kick and scream and cry and beg to let us keep going and see the whole protocol, see if there are foods that they don't aspirate on, see if there are liquids that they don't aspirate on. There's a lot of compensatory strategies that we like to try too. It might be, you know, a chin down, it might be a chin, chin tucked to the side, it might be a head tilt. 
Um, there's different, you know, Mendelssohn maneuver. There's a lot of different compensatory strategies that we can do depending on the physiology that can help to direct the bolus elsewhere. So, um, like I said, stopping the study after one bout of aspiration does nobody any good <laughs> other than saying there was aspiration on the study. So, um, we really want to keep trying to make sure that we come up with a good treatment plan for the patient. Cause essentially that's, that's the whole point of doing it. <laughs> I guess that brings us back. I mean, the the whole penetration aspiration aspect. You had mentioned um, in the beginning too that sometimes aspiration can be within the confines of normal physiology. I guess would you say if you see aspiration on a video fluoroscopic swallow study, is that necessarily pathologic, or how do you work through that? No, no, not not at all. And you know that's sort of the thing because sometimes the patient might not even know, you know, sometimes if, if it's part of something that they normally do, they may not know. Um, and in that case, it's called silent aspiration. Obviously, if they have a condition, um, you know, you had mentioned patients with Parkinson's before, it's um, very common for them to have silent aspiration. They lose a lot of that sensory feeling in there. So for them, obviously, if they have silent aspiration, that's not good. That's a big red flag for us. We don't you know, want them to be silently aspirating everything and, you know, accumulating material in the lungs. But if it's a healthy, normal adult that is aspirating occasionally, it's not a big deal. Um, if they are able to cough it out, that's great. You know, that's what we want the body to do. That's the natural, you know, defense mechanism of the body is to cough. So if they do feel it, you know, we can almost train the patients, you know, hey, did you feel that? Did you not feel it? Great. If you feel that, cough it out. You know, that's your that's your body protecting itself. So there's a lot that we can do there depending on what the condition that the patient presents with and, and what we're able to see and how much time the radiologist gives us to basically train them at that, I should say, which which that can be a, you know, a pro for fees is that we're in charge of holding the scope. So we're able to take a lot longer to sort of train the patient on some of those strategies that they can use. I can't think of any other questions related to the video fluoroscopic swallow study. I know we had mentioned UES um before, obviously, we, that's something else we can pick up. Just UES dysfunction, not um, things like that. I don't, I don't know if you want to comment on that. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. There's definitely. Um, we ask the radiologist if we can turn the patient to the front and we can get an anterior posterior view of the patient. Uh, that allows us to get a symmetrical view of the esophagus and see if there's, you know, if there's any asymmetry in the esophagus. Um, helps us if we can see any any strictures, things like that, gives us some ideas of that. And then obviously from there, we'll want to refer the patient on to GI. But um, it's a lot of working with the radiologists to allow, <laughs> allow them to, or have them al- allow us to do some of the things that we want to do. So that's a big thing with, with video fluoroscopy is that we're able to get that AP view as well. And then I guess, so then on the sagittal, in the sagittal plane, you'd see things like uh, a CP bar or a Zenker's diverticulum, things like that. Yep. Yep. All that. Okay, great. So talking now about treatment. So I guess if we start with outpatient treatment, are there some overarching principles or things you're working with patients? I I know it's like painting, painting with very broad strokes here, just with the different etiologies, but I mean, I I guess just touching on outpatient treatment of dysphagia. Yep. Yep. So I would say we basically break things up into two categories. There's compensatory strategies and there's actually rehabilitative exercises. So um, there's a lot of compensatory strategies that we can do just to make the patient more comfortable or make things easier for them. If it is a patient that does not have, you know, a degenerative condition or, you know, somebody like that has had a stroke or is, you know, recovering from surgery, something like that, that can be rehabbed, then obviously we can put together a much more aggressive exercise plan. So, you know, with that, we just think of the, you know, principles of neuroplasticity and 
the best <laughs> the best way to solve a swallowing problem is by swallowing. So there's a few different exercise protocols out there that just you know have the patient swallowing up to a hundred times a session, and it's with different you know we can sort of quote unquote weight the bolus, so it can be a heavier bolus, it can be you know pudding, or it can be something heavier like that. So there's all sorts of different exercise treatments that we can do that literally just involve swallowing, but it's a lot of repetition. It's, you know, adding some weight, adding some resistance. Um, there's also, you know, there's a lot of technology out there too. There's a lot of things like there's e-stim, there's also biofeedback that we can do. Um, there's exercise muscle strength training, which is sort of like a resistive breathing device that we can use. Um, so there's all sorts of technology that that can be involved as well. But really, it just breaks down to, you know, is the patient interested more in compensatory strategies or do we want to try a more aggressive exercise plan? When you're doing one of these more aggressive exercise plans, how many times are you seeing a patient like this over the course of their treatment? Yeah, so that's a great question. There's there's a protocol co- called MDTP. It's the McNeil Dysphagia Therapy Program. Um, and that actually has a patient come in five times a week. It's about five times a week. Each session is about one to two hours, and it runs about three weeks long. But the outcomes that they've had, they've published a lot of research papers on it. The outcomes are incredible. Um, so really, really short, intensive rehab to get these patients back to swallowing. Um, there's another, um, I can't think of what it's called. It's IDT or the initials. I can't think of what the I stands for, but it's dys- dysphagia therapy. Same thing, just a very intensive, you know, an hour long of just swallowing water, just swallowing saliva, um, just really intense swallowing, swallow hard, swallow fast, or some of the commands that we say all the time to really stress those muscles. Um, but those are usually done about three to five times per week for three to four weeks to, you know, really get those muscles moving again. If off the top of your head, can you think of any etiologies or types of pathology that tend to respond best to this kind of therapy? I, I would say strokes. Um, obviously, you know, the, the brain is set up to to recover. I would say a stroke is probably the the number one. There's obviously other surgical conditions. A lot of times some of these patients have get involved with surgery that, um, you know, impairs something. I'm trying to think specifically. Like an ACDF, I think, is one. Yep, that's exactly what I was thinking of. Yep, yep. I've had a couple of ACDF patients that really needed some really intense rehab therapy after that edema went down um, that have done really well, too. Anything else for outpatient that you think is salient to touch on here? Um, for outpatient? You know, you know, I don't think so. I think if I can just mention anything, I would just say if, if you're suspecting any sort of swallowing problem, I would really, really encourage you to encourage your patient to have them go for an instrumental. Um, don't pick favorites, whether it's fees or video fluoroscopy, whatever whatever your patient can get access to, whatever your, your hospital has access to. Um, and then to, yeah, to encourage outpatient therapy if that's needed. Because sometimes, like I said, if, if the compensatory route is the way that they want to go, sometimes we can just make those treatment plans in two to three sessions. Um, and sometimes those can even be done through telemedicine, through teletherapy. So it doesn't have to be, like I mentioned, these really long, intense programs. It can just be, you know, a few sessions to figure out what sets you, sets you up best for success and, and moving on from there. When thinking about uh, inpatient treatment, I, I, I guess one of the most common things is just restricting the types of intake, which is something we've already talked about related to the fees. Any other overarching principles of inpatient management of dysphagia? You know, I think one one of the big things is is you know getting the patient off 
off the vent and eating and drinking as soon as possible. I know there's sort of this infamous 24 hour rule that nobody really knows where it came from. Um, but if you're, if you can get your speech pathologist in there, as soon as these patients are, you know, taken off the vent or, um, yeah, we can usually get them back eating or drinking within a few hours. So they don't have to wait this long, long time after coming off the vent. I think that's sort of a myth that a lot of people, a lot of people think of in the ICU. We want to get the meeting and drinking as, you know, as soon as possible. All right. Well, um, that pretty much wraps up most of the questions I had for you, Teresa, today. Um, was there anything else that we didn't talk about that you wanted to mention or other pearls for ENT trainees that um, you think would be helpful to talk about? No, you know, I think I think if I could say anything is make friends with your SLP. I know I always tell SLPs to make friends with your ENTs. Um, I, there's so much that we can learn from each other. I know, you know, there's so much that we can offer your practice. There's so much, obviously, that you guys can help us identify on fees or video fluoroscopy. I think um, it's so helpful if we can just rely on each other. So if you ever do have a patient with, you know, a swallowing impairment, please, you know, refer them to an SLP. Please encourage them to get an instrumental assessment done and then obviously encourage them to get some therapy too if that's if that's the route that they want to go. I think a lot of people don't realize that we we truly can do so much with rehabilitating the swallow now. Um, I think it used to just be these compensatory strategies like, oh, you're going to have to just tuck your chin for life or you're going to have to be on thickened liquids for life. But it's really not the case. There's so much that we can do in rehab and therapy to actually get these patients back to eating and drinking and restore their quality of life a lot faster than, than we thought possible before. Well, awesome. Um, just a reminder for those listening, check out the Swallow Your Pride podcast that Teresa has. You can also find her on Twitter and Instagram, T Richard SLP. Um, Teresa, thank you so much for your time and coming on the show today. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. All right, we will now move on to the summary portion of the podcast. Um, touched on a number of different episodes related to normal and abnormal or pathologic swallow today. I talked about the different overarching phases as we classically think about that as like an oral preparatory phase or an oral phase, a pharyngeal phase, an esophageal phase. Obviously, much more nuanced than that. Teresa mentioned up uh, 17 components that are uh, analyzed on a modified barium or a video fluoroscopic swallow study. Um, just some of the key elements of that, thinking about how the pharyngeal phase, for instance, um, slows with time as, as patients age that, age, that transit time is increased, which increases the risk of aspiration just in terms of total time duration exposure to the airway. Talked a lot about airway protection mechanisms, how that's one of the critical aspects that occurs during the pharyngeal phase of swallow. There's a host of different mechanisms. We talked about the difference between penetration and aspiration um, and talked about how sometimes even aspiration in the setting of an intact cough reflex um, can be normal and not pathologic. Then discussed different elements of um, screening for dysphagia, everything from the EAT-10 to a bedside nursing swallow. Talked about the clinical swallow evaluation and then the progression to an instrumental evaluation of swallow, which encompasses either a fees, a, a functional endoscopic evaluation of swallow, or a video fluoroscopic swallow study. And noting all the different aspects that uh, the SLPs are looking for on that, and then wrapped it up with a discussion of treatment, uh, learning that treatment is oftentimes um, some of the most effective treatment is very intense treatment that occurs every day over the course of a few weeks, uh, up to sometimes a couple hours a day. And so uh, a significant time input by the 
patient, but uh, oftentimes very successful and clinically relevant to things like a stroke or uh, recent surgery. For example, we talked about ACDF. Um, but those are some of the pearls from uh, today's episode. And now we will talk about a few questions. We'll have a few questions for, the, for today. The first question is, how would you distinguish aspiration and penetration? So this is typically assessed on a video fluoroscopic swallow study, um, but penetration is the passage of material transported from the mouth or regurgitated from the esophagus that enters into the larynx but stays above the vocal fo folds, whereas aspiration actually passes through the vocal folds, um, through the glottis. Important definition there, those terms are each packed with distinct meanings. Next question here, what is the difference between a modified barium swallow or a video fluoroscopic swallow study um, and a traditional barium swallow, or sometimes called an esophagram. So the key difference here to, to recognize is that the video fluoroscopic swallow study gives you an, a more real-time assessment of what is happening during swallow. There's, there's slight other differences in terms of where the image is being captured. For instance, a barium swallow will capture the LES or lower down more so than a video fluoroscopic swallow study will. But for our purposes today, the video fluoroscopic uh, swallow study captures imaging at 30 frames per second, roughly about five times faster than what can be achieved with a traditional barium swallow. And that gives us a great look at aspiration as well as um, things like UES dysfunction. We talked about identifying a Zankers or a um, CP bar. All right, third question here. Um, third and, and last question. Name as many of these, as many airway protection mechanisms as you can. There, there was a whole host, but see if you can remember a few. All right, this is hard. I'm not going to go through all of them, but just some of the uh, very high yield ones. Um, remembering that you get closure of the glottis by a deduction of the trivocal folds. Um, the arytenoids typically move anteriorly to contact the epiglottis. Um, there's hyolaryngeal uh, elevation, which that's the piece that we talk sometimes um, as classically being decreased in patients with a tracheostomy um, present. And then last one, that epiglottis, obviously tilting posteriorly to cover the laryngeal vestibule. There's more, but those are some of the highest yield ones. And yeah, that'll wrap things up for today's episode. Thanks so much for tuning in and we'll catch you next time.